You're about to get shaken down in the Schaefer Shakedown. Yes. Welcome to episode two of the Schaefer Shakedown. Thank you to everyone who has listened so far. Um, to the people who've left reviews and ratings, please, please leave a review. It helps uh, get the word out about the podcast, share it with your friends. I just appreciate you, each and every one of you, so much for listening. I'm having so much fun doing this podcast. But, but you know, before I go on, I do want to address something um, that um, I feel like I'm overdue in talking about publicly, and that is I need to apologize for being reckless with some of my financial advice that I've given online on my social medias. Um, you know, I know that people, you know, I'm a comedian, I'm a podcaster, and I'm a crafter, um, and home, you know, amateur homesteader. And those four things, people go, oh, she knows what she's talking about when it, when it comes to investing, you know, whenever you see that a comedian has a successful podcast, you go, they probably know about investing. Um, and then when you add on my hobbies and stuff like that, it's like, whoa, she must really know. Um, and I just want to be clear, I am not an accredited financial advisor. I do not um, purport to know, you know, what you should be doing with your investments. Okay, just to be clear, and I, in the past, I have pushed certain cryptocurrencies one in particular um, online, and I just, you know, I don't want to tank that cryptocurrency because I know the reach that I do have is pretty powerful. And just by the, you know, the wave of a hand, I could tank this um, cryptocurrency that I'm about to mention. That's why I'm kind of being careful about leading up to mentioning it, just giving a lot of caveats and disclaimers. You know, a lot of people are really talking about Dogecoin right now. They're talking about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all those things. I personally don't um, pedal in those. I My cryptocurrency of choice, which is one that I feel like it's a little more stable, um, is Extra Bucks. CVS Extra Bucks is my cryptocurrency of choice. It's the Schaefer Shakedown cryptocurrency of choice. Um, I do accept payment in CVS Extra Bucks. If you want to give me any of your Extra Bucks, I will use them. I do use all my extra bucks. Um, and I find that they um, actually are growing in value, especially now that you can do everything on the app and you don't, please, the long receipts, the CVS receipts, think of the past, you know, talk about <laughs> environmental impact, you know, that we're talking about when it comes to cryptocurrency right now. The environmental impact of these cryptocurrencies is like crazy, you know, the amount of power that is required. Well, you could argue the same thing about CVS because of their receipts are so long. Not so. CVS is, is has joined the modern era and they, um, you know, they now offer digital receipts that get emailed directly to you if you scan your extra care card. So, you know, those long receipts are a thing of the past. You're wasting, you're killing trees and you're killing the environment by getting those. Um, and if you're not, you know, using your extra bucks, you it's just money that you're leaving on the table. And again, I don't, I, I, I recommend talking to a professional um, accredited financial advisor about these things. But again, um, just wanted to be clear, you know, I am very enthusiastic about extra bucks, but I also, you know, you have to go, you have to, you know, do your research and do your due diligence when you invest in cryptocurrencies. So just wanted to get that out of the way. Um, but yeah, uh, hold the line. Um, you will 
You know, what I always say about CVS is hold the line when it comes to coupons. Never pay full price. Wait for stuff to get on sale. The things that you buy will go on sale eventually, and you'll save money. And then you'll use your extra bucks on top of it, and you're earning towards more rewards. I mean, you can even join the Extra Care Pass uh, program, which I'm in, which is $5 a month. You get 10 extra bucks um, monthly, so it pays for itself. You get 20% off all CVS brand items in addition. Again, not a, not a, um, <laughs> I, I don't work for CVS and I'm not getting paid for this. Um, it's just something I'm passionate about and it's, you know, I am on my way to being, um, a super millionaire, um, because of this. So, you know, do that, do with that what you will. Um, Okay, here's what's happening in my uh, um, little world, little being the key word there. Um, if you follow me on social media, you probably have seen the reveal of my secret side project, which I've been working on for about a month, um, and it is Ha Ha Hole, my miniature comedy club in one-inch scale. I posted it yesterday. I was working so hard to try and get it done all these little details taken care of up to the last second. And I was like, I just got to get it done. First of all, because like the table that I was making it on was such a mess. And um, I'm going to be traveling soon. And I just wanted to be done. I just wanted to share it with the world. So I posted it yesterday, pictures and some video of my miniature comedy club. If you haven't seen it yet, please check it out. I love this project so much. And I'm so excited that people like it. it. seems like people really are appreciating the care and the work I put into it. Um, and, you know, as I was mentioning last week, it, you know, not only has working in miniature, like changed the way I look at things, but it's inspired me um, creatively in ways I don't even know what they are yet. I can just feel it. Um, and I was reading this book. It's this, I keep thinking of this quote. Um, I've been reading this book in one of my other hobby areas. Um, uh, it's called Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. It's a very nerdy book about regenerative, regenerative farming practices and how to build <laughs> soil, a, uh, microbe, um, a microbial wonderland in your soil it's about farming. It's very detailed about like, he's like talking about hectares and, uh, you know, heads of cattle and like, um, you know, grazing, um, quadrants and things like that. It's very nerdy, but I'm into it. Anyway, this quote is in the book. It's from a dip, not Gabe Brown, but it's from his friend, Don Campbell, who's a holistic management guy in farming. And he said, if you want to make small changes change the way you do things. If you want to make major changes, change the way you see things. And that really hit me um, in, a, in my life that has nothing to do with soil or gardening or anything. It has to do with um, my creative work and I changing. There's something about when you're working in miniature, it does change the way you look at things in the world and it has it is making major changes I feel in me just the core of who I am almost I just it's transformative is how I've described it this project um 
So let me tell you a little bit more about the miniature comedy club and how it came together. So my um, landlord slash friend slash pod mate, Jordan Scoville, um, built the shell. I gave I was like, okay, I want to make a miniature comedy club. And she was like, can I help? And I was like, sure. So she, I sent her, I gave her the, the specs I wanted and she went and built the like actual walls and floor of the comedy club. And I immediately went online. I got, um, like some, some embossed paper, brick wall, uh, microphone and a stool. That's like what I started with. And, um, you know, painting it black and like, and then I'm like, you know, and now I gotta, well, I gotta add curtains. So I'm like trying to figure out how to make curtains, which is exceedingly difficult to make curtains look uh, real in miniature because, as I mentioned, fabric is, like, the hardest thing to do in miniature. Um, and then I get the idea, oh, I've got to put headshots on the wall, so I've got to figure out how to make miniature headshots. These are, like, I did to scale, like, an 8 by 10 in one inch scale is, like, 0.83 inches by 0.66 inches. And I literally measured every single, like, I made the frames with four little pieces of wood with miter cuts, like I really did it up. And each picture frame has, well, I'll get get to the headshots in a second. Um, Well, as I'm making the club, I'm realizing, you know, oh my God, I need a green room. I've got to do a green room. No way. So we built the green room shell and then I'm painting and, you know, even painting in miniature, you've got to do certain techniques so that you, so it looks really flat and matte. And so that, because if you have too much, um, texture and strokes, it looks, it takes you out of it and it doesn't look, um, like a miniature wall. It looks like, uh, you know, you can see a huge paintbrush stroke. It doesn't look real. So all those things, I mean, even like baseboards, I built a door from scratch, even like put hinges, you know, not used a, you use like a dress pin, um, as your hinge, you stick it down through the wood in the frame to the door. And it, it's just like a perfect little hinge. I watched a tutorial on YouTube about that. Um, I made the sofa. I talked about that last week. I made tables. I made the neon sign, which was really challenging. And there was no, no, you, no tutorial. I even posted in one of the dollhouse Facebook groups that I'm in, which I'm in many. Um, I even posted in one of those and it, um, they asking like, hey, does anybody have any experience making a neon sign? Any tutorials where you can buy one? Nobody had any ideas. And um, one lady had an idea of like this like, kind of like glow stick or glow bracelets, you know. And I was like, those are too thick. That's too thick of material for a miniature neon sign. So I start researching And I find this stuff called EL wire and people like it's literally advertised to Burning Man. They're like, use it for Burning Man. Like that's how it's described on Amazon. Um, Or like you use it in your car to like light up the dash and stuff. It's like this really thin glowing wire that's battery powered. Um, I bought some of it and it's like 0.4 millimeters thick and it's flexible um, but I immediately get out of the package and it's like, I can tell it's like really fragile. Like it won't stay on if you bend it too hard and like it, it shorts out. I'm reading about how to work with it. And I get the sense like, how am I going to shape this? And I'm like trying to shape it, you know, neon signs, like you'll look at a neon sign and it, they'll have little pieces of metal, like holding this stuff in place. But it's not the same because neon is like melted glass or something. And then they're shaping. I don't really know how they make <laughs> 
I don't know how they make neon in real life, but it definitely involves like like glass blowing, I think, or like melting or like <laughs> like wrought iron. I don't know. You're 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 in like a, a like a kiln. I don't I don't know. You're like melting stuff down. I don't have that. Um, and doing it in miniature sounds like it'd be impossible anyway. But um, so I get the idea like, oh, I'm, I embroider letters all the time, like tiny letters. This concept isn't so different. I'm working with a string, this wire, and I could literally sew it through a piece of a, a little sign. Like I, so I took a little piece of, I did it on foam core at first and it didn't work because it smushed, it, I couldn't get it to go through. Um, without it getting bunched up. And then I realized wood, it would just go through really cleanly. So I used a little miniature drill <laughs> to, I drew out the design and where each, um, where the holes were going to be for it to, uh, sew through or embroider through. And then I just basically sewed the letters very gently. Um, and it worked and I was like screaming with joy and I posted it in one of my dollhouse groups and they were like, oh my God, s s walk me through how you did this. And I was just like, caveat, it, again, it's very finicky. It won't stay on. I have to like hold the button down. Anyway, I also made a mini, mini fridge, which took like three days and it just like was so frustrating frustrating it kept coming apart I used like eight different types of glue on this thing at first I was trying to use one method of getting the door to open and close and that didn't work so I had to buy these like I had these well I actually didn't buy them I had them these like miniature hinges and I spray painted them black I mean it was just I made like I had like stainless steel contact paper that I was like cutting into the tiniest pieces to make the door look real. And like I put even a blue light in it. And then I made little tiny LaCroix cans and Red Bull cans and put them in there. Ah, it turned out so good though. It was worth it. I almost thought about redoing it because it looks a little messy because it's been manhandled so much. And like the glue was so hard to keep clean. You know, the little, the little glass door was starting to get really dirty and it was hard to clean it without breaking. The whole thing would just shatter if I like messed with it too much. So, um, that was a whole ordeal. Um, I even like got little light switch and outlet stickers. Like, so they sell these like miniature, you know, to scale outlet stickers. So it looks like you have like an outlet or light switch on the wall. And I got them and they looked really flat. And I was like, oh, these are stickers. They're not like actual. I thought they were going to be like little tiny little miniature 3D light switches, but they were just stickers. So, um, but I figured I was like, I bet I can probably modify these to make them look more 3D. And so I put the sticker on like a tiny little piece of like uh, cardstock. And that just gave it just enough an, of an edge that I could like, s s like press a seam and it would look literally 3D on the wall, like just the tiniest little bit. And then on, and then I even like took an X-Acto knife and like indented where the holes were. <laughs> I mean, like nobody would even see this or care, but I could. And then it, with the light switch, there was no 3D like little switch sticking out. So I took, I mean, just like a speck of white cardboard and I just took tweezers and I glued it to it and it looks real. It's just, oh my God. <sighs> okay. What else? Um, I did the ceiling in the club. I did lighting and I even took this like, um, it's, it's actually called a, what is it called? Someone told me the word sprue or 
I might be getting the word wrong. It's it's this plastic stuff. So when you buy a toy or like um, part of a model making kit, like it comes in this plastic thing that you rip the pieces off and it's got it like, I don't even know how to explain it. But anyway, I, my mom, Jordan had one. She goes, do you think you could use this for something? And I was like, oh my God, that could be the like grid on the ceiling with like where the lights hang off of the lighting grid. It looked, I spray painted it black and it looked so real and like I put these little um led lights that look like little can lights theater lights and then I even like drilled a hole in the ceiling and put a red bulb a miniature red bulb well, it was a, it was actually clear but it, I learned that if you want to change the color of a, a miniature light bulb all you have to do is take a sharpie and color it over and then it becomes the color of whatever you colored over it. That's how I got the light to be blue in the mini fridge. And so I took a little red, a little white light bulb, miniature light bulb, colored it red and stuck it to like through on the top of the ceiling. So that's the light that the comedians get when their time is up. Oh, just a joy to do. It turned, I put LED lights like underneath like a little like lip on the stage so that the stage looks backlit like little footlights in the back and, um, um, I, I even did like a little iPhone and a charger plugged into my little outlet. I mean, it. I wandered Joann's for hours over this past month, just looking at at, at little strings and elastic and all for for all the different elements I needed. I just would walk around and look at stuff and go, what would work? And I, you know, I found things that were lifesavers that I never would have found otherwise or even thought about. So I was in the clearance section at Joann's and I found, you got to go to the clearance section. You just find stuff there. You'll find inspiration and go, oh, I could make something with this. I found this, um, if you know what washi tape is, it's like a, I guess it's like a craft tape that's a little bit like masking tape or painter's tape, but it has all these designs. It's very thin, has all these different designs, but I found a really thick one, like almost the, the width of an, an index card, like like three or four inches wide tape, and it was black, but it looked kind of shiny, like almost like black vinyl or like a plastic, and it, I was like, ooh, this works really well as like the outer edge of my um, mini fridge. It looks like that black plastic on the edge of a fridge. Or I made a little tiny miniature moleskin notebook for the green room, and it looks like that black leather. Um, and all I did to do was cut a little piece and put it around. I took a um, a post-it notes pad. I had a white post-it notes, and I took just the edge of the sticky part, which was my binding, and I cut the paper tiny. So it was just imagine a teeny tiny. Um, post-it notes pad is a teeny tiny book. It's already bound by that little sticky stuff they use in the post-it notes. And then I took that black washi tape that looked like vinyl or leather and I just used it as the outer as the outer cover and it looks so real. God! I could go on forever about this. I mean, it was truly just an incredible experience. I, I commissioned, I'm not, um, I have never tried to make miniature food. Um... But, uh, and I thought it was a little bit out of my league to, and just would take a whole nother month of me learning that process. So um, instead of buying food from online, I commissioned my friend Taya Lux. She's a very funny crafter. Um, I mentioned her on the last podcast. She's the one that did the comedy craft show that I, that me and Bethy um, were at. And um, she, I commissioned her to make some food items. So she made a little plate of nachos, a veggie tray, 
charcuterie board, um, candy. Like she went to town, like um, hamburger with fries, a sandwich and chips. I mean, just the detail, her talent. You got to look up Taya Lux, T-H-E-A-L-U-X-E. Um, and then, um, well, I don't know if there's an E, but if you look it up, Taya Lux, um, spelled like Thea. Taya is how she says it. And then um, she also, I think it's Hot Dog City hot dog i don't know i i linked i i i mentioned her in my post about the mini comedy club so you can definitely find her there she sells um miniature she's also an incredible uh crocheter and knitter she makes beautiful sweaters she's she's a kindred spirit and we are becoming friends at this point i don't know if she knows that yet but we we are going to be friends now (laughs) she's in my life now whether she likes it or not um uh, so yeah, I did all this stuff and then, so the headshots have been one of the most exciting parts of the project. Um, I made 50 tiny headshots, as I mentioned, and I even put like little, like I used plastic from like the packaging, um, from like dill that you buy at the store. And I used that as the glass on the, on the picture frames. And then I went into Photoshop and I, I met, I made little boxes that were like, the exact measurement of the frame. And then I would shrink down people's headshots into it, turn it black and white. I even wrote, um, I even did autographs on each of them. <laughs> like they were signed headshots and then their name underneath. Like I really, I mean, you would be really hard to see it if you weren't looking right really close at them. But to me, it just had to look real as real as possible because when you're zooming out and you see that that is what makes it look real in a photo. And someone goes, I thought that was a real club, which multiple people did think it was a real club when I posted it. Best compliment you could receive as a miniaturist. <laughs> um, so as I'm making the headshots, you know, I'm like, I'm just going to do my favorite comedians. Cause you know, ma- you know, miniatures and dollhouses and stuff. It's fantasy. It's where you get to build your world. And, then it occurred to me, like, what if, and I was like, oh, this is going to be a lot of women. I'm going to, you know, make sure there's a lot of women on this wall. And then I went, what if it's all women? And um, because, you know, when you go to most comedy clubs, truly most of them in this country, and they have pictures or posters up on the wall, it's mostly men. Even in this day and age, um, it's mostly men. And some are egregious where it's like you're scanning the wall, like, where are the women? <laughs> and then you find two women and it's two women that you either don't think are funny don't relate to or like just feel like you were are nothing like them you're just like I don't belong here if that's who they think is funny with when it comes to women and so I thought in in my mini comedy club if I have all women on the wall to do the reverse of what it's like in the real world it's not an all women's comedy club this is a comedy club Um, I was like, I wanted to focus in on how it feels to be a woman walking into a comedy club um, and seeing the pictures and try to reverse that feeling for men. And that is, you know, this isn't a women's only comedy club. It's a comedy club. It just happens to be that we only book the best. Like, that's what you feel when you go in, when they go, wow, we just book funny is funny. You know, we just book the best. So... And you look up at the wall, you're like, well, I guess you don't think women are funny. Because, <laughs> you know, and they'll go, well, where are the women? Um, here, we, we actually do book women, and they show you the two. 
It's all the all that stuff. So I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to make it all women. I'm going to make it mostly women and then just two men. And I thought, which men would I put up there? And I thought, wouldn't it be funny to put two men that elicit that same kind of feeling? And I, I, I don't want to go read too much into it. I'm not saying with these two choices that they are not funny. Obviously, an enormous amount of people find them funny. I picked Jeff Dunham and Carrot Top <laughs> as the two men. Because they are, you know, there are a lot of men, there are a lot of people who don't particularly think that they're that funny. Like, they're not comics comics, you know, they're not like the ones that the other comedians are like, that's a legend, you know. Um, but anyway, I'm not, I'm not analyzing it too much. I just was like, these would be two funny things to see on the wall when you're scanning the faces and you go, oh, the only two men are Carrot Top and Jeff Dunham. <laughs> And, uh, and also I just wanted to kind of push this idea that, you know, ultimately any comedy club, the wall is chosen by one or two people. Uh, one person's taste dictates who is on that wall. So comedy club bookers will sometimes act like they are just simply reflecting the best available talent out in the world on their stage. Uh, whatever is the funniest out there is what you're going to see on our stage. And that is the only thing that drives our bookings, merit. That is the only prerequisite to perform on our stage is that you are very, very funny. And that is just silly. It's never that just that. Because first off, the question to begin with is fraught. You know, we only book the funniest. The funniest to who? You. You're an individual. Comedy is subjective. Um, and it's so much more than just even that to begin with. So even if, even if comedy was completely objective and we had like a, a DNA test for who is the funniest person and, and then we just knew that's the funniest person, you have to book them. Besides that, there's still more that goes into it. Okay. It's personal relationships. It's business. It's a financial decision. There's ego, power. There's so much that goes into choosing who gets to perform on your stage. And all of this got me thinking about my own place in comedy, you know, my own relationship with the quote unquote comedy club. And that brings us to uh, where we're heading on in. The, the river is taking us straight into quadrant four of the Schaefer Shakedown. Yep, we're going there. If you listen to the intro, you know what it is. Quadrant four. Shit talking and hot takes. Welcome to quadrant four. Um, I'm going to start off because, you know, as I'm working on this comedy club project, this miniature comedy club project, uh, uh, yet another comedy debate erupted this week over an incident in Texas where a comedian named Pang Dang, a Chinese-American comedian, um, was, I don't know if he was hosting the show. I mean, I'm assuming he was because what he did, he's a younger comic. He's been in the game for maybe like four years. Um, and he was introducing a much bigger comic, uh, a much well, a better known comic um, to come up on stage. So Pang finishes his set and goes, coming to the stage, you know, the very funny, I, I don't remember exactly how he introduced him, but he's like, the very funny, Tony Hinchcliffe. This comedian, Tony Hinchcliffe, uh, comes up on stage and just immediately tears into Pang um, and does it in a way that is completely unacceptable. He 
he call he says, you know, this filthy, dirty little, and then he used a racial slur um, against Asian people. Uh, it starts with a C, ends with a K. Horrible, straight up hate speech. Um, and then he goes on to say, to criticize Pang's set, saying that, you know, he was puking into a fucking bucket listening to it backstage. That's how horrible Pang's set was. And it made Tony puke, according to his jokey uh, commentary here, quote unquote, jokey commentary. And then he proceeds to do a horrible, racist, uh, stereotype accent, um, Chinese accent. And it's and then he, apparently he continues and does even more racist jokes after this. I didn't watch more of the video, but I read about what else he said. Um, so people obviously get very upset. You know, Pang is the one that posted the video. The video was filmed by someone in the audience. And I read an interview with Pang and he was saying, you know, he debated posting it because he felt that it was going against another comedian, which I'll get to in a minute. The, this unspoken comedian's code, you don't go after another comedian. Um, and, you know, uh, but he said that he is someone who stands up against racism, against himself and other people, and he felt that this crossed a line and that he, this was his way of fighting back and saying, no, this is not okay. He said that Tony did not reach out to him after, did not apologize. He is not friends with Tony. He doesn't know Tony. Um, he has performed on, a, on, a, on another show with him once before, but again, he said he never even saw, he, he didn't know, he didn't talk to Tony at that time. So it's not like they're friends. This is not inside joke stuff that was done in public in front of people. It was uh, way out of left field and totally fucking wrong. And Pang fought back. Um, now, both of Pang and Tony now are getting harassed online. Um, Tony got dragged by a lot of well-known comedians. I did not join in the pylon. I do not. Um, I've kind of like adopted a stance of avoiding participating in online pylons. Um, not that I don't think people deserve it. In this case, I do think Tony got, <laughs> got, uh, earned the pylon because what he did was so fucking disgusting. Um, but I personally just choose not to, um, which I'm not going to really get into here because I feel like it's a separate topic of like online mobs and, and group, is it a mob or is it just a group discussion? Is it a group dunking? There's different terms we can call it. Is it canceling? Whatever. Um, not going to go there now. But, um, you know, round the merry-go-round we go again with uh, comedians fighting with each other online. Um, and one of the arguments from the side that is defending Tony, Tony has not said anything as of this point um but he has been like dropped by his agency and um, maybe suffering other career consequences i'm not really sure now the other side the the side uh that is defending tony is saying that context is very important in in this situation you need to understand the context you need to know what pang said you need to know what tony's intention was all that stuff um okay let's get into it let's get into the context I love context. Um, so the big questions in this debate are, um, what are the rules of comedy? 
And this, this is, these are sort of the central questions that kind of are at the heart of all of these debates that have been happening in comedy in the past few years. What are the rules of comedy? Who defines them? Who gets to do comedy? How are comedians supposed to treat each other and their audience? What is the relationship between the comedian um, and their audience, the relationship between the comedian and the other, and other comedians and their peers? Is the joke... Our God is the joke, our only concern, um, or are there other factors at play? If, 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 I guess the theory that's being put forth is that as long as it's funny, it doesn't matter what the consequences are. As long as people are laughing, it doesn't matter. And people did laugh at Tony's joke. Not a lot. Let's be honest. It didn't crush, but you had a few of these guys. <laughs> that kind of laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you heard a few of those. Um, so th those are the questions here. Okay, so those are the questions and people are demanding that we look at the context. All right, I'll get into the context. Um, let's start ultimately, now this is zooming way out, <laughs> with the word club. Okay, and I and I'm I'm going there because I have been building this miniature comedy club, and even though I don't know if this show was in a comedy, it was outdoors. But since the pandemic, I'm not sure what the venue was for this. Uh, I do believe it was a comedy club, but set up outside. I'm not really sure, um, but it's still an extension of the comedy club world. Tony Hinchcliffe is a club you know, works in clubs and paying, I'm sure, is aspiring to work in clubs and probably has already worked in many clubs. So let's talk about the word comedy club first off, okay? The neutral meaning is just, you know, a place where people gather for a specific purpose, okay? That's a very neutral meaning. But to me, there's a lot of it's interesting that we call comedy places comedy clubs, okay? Yes, there are theaters and there's other words we use, but generally we use the word club to describe a place where go, people go see comedy. And I've always found that interesting because you don't really call them music clubs. You know, you don't go to a music club to see music. Comedy clubs are called clubs. And that is um, interesting to me because the word club inherently to me implies exclusivity. Um, something that some people belong to and some people don't, you know, like country club, boys club. Um, I was looking up the word club and there was an older definition in Samuel John Johnson's dictionary in the 1770s. Um, and I thought it was interesting the way he defined it was an assembly of good fellows meeting under certain conditions. Forget the fellows thing. I mean, it was the 1770s. Women didn't were invisible, <laughs> uh, which is a problem, obviously. But but meeting under certain conditions. The word conditions is interesting to me because it implies that it's conditional. You know, you get to be a part of this club if you meet certain conditions. Do you are you a certain identity? Do you adhere to the rules of this club? Uh, and clubs have rules: spoken rules, written rules, implied rules. Um, and they exist. Um, so now that we've established that, um, and I, and there's just the stuff I was talking about, about fun, you know, 
bookers trying to pretend that they only book based on what's funny. There's also this like theory that's being pushed forth in these debates that I hear, which is comedy is for anyone. It doesn't matter. It's not racist. It's not biased. It's for anyone. If you're funny, you're funny. That's all that matter. The word open mic, it's open. It's open to anyone. But when you get into it, it's again, it's not so open. It is not the bastion of freedom of speech that people think it is. Even in a comedy club, which is supposed to be this place of you can say anything as long as it's funny, there are lanes of acceptable speech in these places. Um, And these battles are being fought right now out in the open. Um, There are social rules that are really strict in these places. Um, And this relate back to like me working on the mini club because I was thinking about all this and like how I myself was putting myself in the role of gatekeeper by deciding who was going to go on the wall and who wasn't and that's stressing me out. But it just made me think about all these things. And um, even when I posted it, I was getting some comments from comedians being like, this is triggering me. This is giving me like PTSD. This is bringing me nostalgia. It was giving people an emotional experience. And I was hearing that from all types of comedians. And, um, you know, I don't know if that's because of the pandemic or just like what we all project onto a club when we see it um and that's why i don't really in miniatures and dollhouses i i don't like it when people put dolls in there because um i like to project and imagine myself in there or make it my own experience um and so my stage and my even though i did put pictures of real comedians on the walls the stage and the green room are empty And you can project your own emotional experience onto it. And that relates to this conversation, these debates in comedy, because I feel like we're pushing for a universal definition, a universal experience of comedy, a universal comedian that we all must strive to be. But in reality, it's individual. There are individual experiences and there's individual tastes. Laughter is an involuntary bodily function that you you are trying to draw out of someone else. And they either laugh or they don't. And unlocking that puzzle is an infinite mystery and an, and, and an infinite task to try and conquer. And the more people that you can make laugh, I think that's what we strive for as comedians. And that might be why we're searching for this universal experience. Um, because the more people you can make laugh, the bigger and better and more famous and more rich you are and more successful and more respected. Okay. Um, the thing is though, is that <laughs> You can be pretty successful and only get a small portion of the population as your fan, you know, so you can get pretty successful and be making a group of people laugh that think your racist jokes are hilarious. And that's the thing. And when we get into this Tony stuff, I will never say that Tony isn't funny because I don't believe in pointing at a comedian you don't like and going, they aren't funny. Well, they're funny to somebody. Okay, somebody, if you're at a certain level of success, and Tony has more followers than me, he has more money than me, I'm sure. He, he's bigger than I am in terms of numbers. Um, I've, ne- I've seen him perform a couple times, and I don't think he's funny. But somebody does. A lot of people do. He, I can't, you can't say he's not funny. Now, you can say, I don't think he's funny. Um, I mean, you know, it's part of why I put like someone like Jeff Dunham on the wall. I personally don't think I've, I don't think Jeff Dunham is funny, but a fuck ton of people do. And that is 
That will make some comedians crazy, but we are just obsessed with finding out this is what a comedian is, and this is what a good comedian does. This is what good comedy is, and this is what bad comedy is. But it's not definitive, and it's not universal, and you guys sound like fucking cult members. You know, I, I, I hate that um, talk. You know, the comedians act like this. You know, we're... We always stand up for each other. You never go after another comedian. Like, we're family. And and I always feel like people that say that are are really, really snug and safe inside one of the clubs. You know, whether it's a scene um, or an actual comedy club, uh, a particular group of comedians that hang around each other a lot, um... It, the people who say that usually are on the inside. Um, they're not on the outside of these places. Because if you're on the outside of those places, it doesn't feel like a family. And you don't feel like these people have your back. Um, I personally have never felt like I belonged in most comedy spaces. Uh, uh, across the spectrum, you know. And that's just sort of like a personality thing and my anxiety. Um you know, a little bit of imposter syndrome probably going on. Um, but I've just never felt like I belonged. You know, my early days in uh, New York City, I get there and I'm taking like improv classes and I'm doing solo performances type stand up kind of stuff um, in clubs. So I'm performing at UCB, Upright Citizens Brigade. I'm performing at um, New York Comedy Club. Uh, stand up New York and a lot of like hole in the wall type open mics and UCB even, you know, um, improv, uh, was to me very exclusive and, you know, um, there seems to be no barrier of entry, but there, first off, there's a financial one. I couldn't afford their classes. I took level one there and then there was a cheaper option. So I went to a cheaper theater, improv theater but I was told by other people at UCB, like, oh, I, I won't go to your class show because I, I, we, we've been told that if we're seen at the other improv theater, we'll be blacklisted because they don't – UCB doesn't like this theater. They feel betrayed by the owner. You know, like just drama that's like, I, what? These are like grown adults, some of them famous. Why are they, why are they having this drama? And I'm like, well, then make your classes cheaper because I can't afford them. You know, um, there was all this talk of loyalty and worship of the people at the top and not a lot of room for questions or criticism. Um, and, you know, to the point, you know, and, and clubs, too, were the same. There was these implied messages of, you know, you got to you got to. You have to, you want to be in here. You got to try to get in here. It's your only way to the top is to come through us. But to do that, you have to play by our rules and you have to do it our way and you have to be cool, man. You got to be chill <laughs> and you have to be liked. You know, I, I did not know going into the, that, going into it, that comedy was going to be so much social climbing. Okay. Fucking nightmare. Like I, uh, to find out that so much of it has to do with your reputation and who likes you and being cool is 
just a nightmare to me. And I look back on it and I'm like, I have so many regrets because I like also it didn't like sink in until many, many years later that it was like I, I spent too much time trying to be creative um, when really I should have been spent about 50 percent of that time trying to be friends with cool people. But that just there was just no way I, I cool people and me oil and vinegar like I'm not going to fit in with that I just it just was and, and also forget the the uh, the mental barrier but I also like couldn't I, I I had a day job okay now a lot of people I knew were either like if they didn't have money they were freelancing waiting tables they were scraping by doing that kind of stuff and bartending more flexible stuff or they were rich they came from a rich family and they had money from their parents and so they didn't have to work I had this day job and it, I needed that stability, but it, it, it meant I couldn't stay out all night just like becoming friends with, with people. Um, so, you know, because that's what they talk about, the, the hang. You got to do the hang. You got to hang out at the club if you want to get in there. You got to hang around a lot. You got to, it's like, why? It, again, what does that have to do with being funny? Okay. Um, so when you set up these kinds of barriers, you know, you add in financial barriers, um, it is inherently sexist because, um, late at night, you know, it starts to get a little sketchy for women, (laughs) you know, that's, um, women may not feel as safe hanging out till three o'clock in the morning in, in a dark, scary basement (laughs) with, with a lot of smelly dudes. Like, you know, there's some of that, but I didn't even have that that kind of fear really because I was I had another barrier which is I wasn't single I had a boyfriend and I was unavailable and that I ran into problems with that immediately I would get asked to do a show by a guy or or a guy would go oh you were really funny tonight I want you to do my show but then they'd like turn it into like but let's go on a date or let's hang out and I'd have to say I have a boyfriend and then the opportunity to perform on the show would disappear so I I I might have missed out on opportunities by not appearing available sexually, you know? Um, so there's all these little things that play into it, you know? Um, I mean, there was times even like, so I did find, you know, while I'm feeling like I don't really belong in these places and I'm having trouble fitting in, I am making my way. I'm finding a community of my own. I'm making um, friends in the gutters and the 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 holes in the wall the the weird apartment shows like any they would call it the alt scene which which is such a a a stupid term because the alternative scene is just people who can't fit in yet or aren't passed yet in the bigger clubs uh that's kind of how i viewed it in new york anyway it really had nothing to do with what type of comedy you did um there was just so there's so many stories like i can't even go into all of them I mean, I'll give you one example. Like, I did find some friends at this little theater called Juvie Hall. My friend Eric Marks-Zach started it. And it was just Bad News Bears, ragtag team of comedians and performers, improvisers, writers, stand-ups, just putting on shows in a little theater that he rented. It was not an institution. They didn't, he didn't have classes or anything. And um, we put on this show weekly called Saturday Night Rewritten. And it was like an experimental sketch show, like a 24-hour sketch challenge where you took – um, SNL from the night before and you wrote a whole new sketch show for Sunday night and it was inspired by SNL so like if they did a sketch about Britney Spears we would do a sketch about Britney Spears it didn't w- wasn't the same sketch we were not um, 
stealing their ideas. It was like an improv prompt. It was just a prompt. And somehow there was some press on it. And Eric said something that kind of made fun of um, Lorne Michaels. And this exploded. Like, it, for some reason, this angered UCB, the community at UCB. Like, they were like, you have offended, you are steal, you are, you are the worst people on earth. Um, you have offended our god, Amy Poehler and Horatio Sands. Like, you are, how dare you go after Lorne Michaels? Lorne Michaels! They were mad. They were taking it somehow personally. People at UCB were somehow taking it personally that Eric had made just a slight offhanded comment about Lorne. He called him a grandpa, which is like, actually could be in his statement of endearment. But anyway, I mean, this was in... Uh, the the early 2000s, all right? I mean, if he was a grandpa then, what is he now? Look, we can get into SNL a different episode. <laughs> different Quadrant 4. Um, but anyway, they were like freaking out on this Improv Resource Center message board online, okay? It was pre-Facebook. And they were like attacking us and they were dunking on us. And some of it was like just mean bullying type, you know, making fun of us. But then, then it got kind of like heated and heightened when Matt Besser, one of the founders of UCB, joins in and starts saying, who are these people? If anybody from, from that show dares step foot at UCB, I will personally remove, physically remove them and throw them to the curb. You know, like it was this, he was threatening violence. Like, it, and I'm like reading it and I'm like, oh my God, one of my heroes wants to hurt me. I'll never perform at UCB, one of the places I really want to perform. <laughs> I was so upset. And I mean, I did end up performing at UCB and I, I had even had a short lived my own show there. Like I, I did okay, but it, I cut myself off from, from really becoming a part of it or really befriending people there. And because I was scared, I thought that they didn't want me. I thought they hated me. I mean, like, it's just stuff like that. It's like, why are you being like this? It's not open to all. You have to follow the social rules, okay? Um, so, you know, and then at clubs, you know, things would happen that would just kind of scare me off of a certain club, like a negative experience, you know, um, as a woman there where I've just felt invisible or maybe a little, like, just like, I don't feel 100% safe here. I don't feel like if something was to happen to me here, uh, that anyone would have my back, you know, um, place skeevy places, skeevy men that just sort of scare you off. And there, there's so many stories like this from female comics. They're like, oh, there's an entire club I could never go to because of something that happened to me there. It just was too scary or, or just, you know, I didn't want to see that guy, you know, really, really real things that, that shape where you can perform the stage time you can get along the way. Uh, the time you can hang, um, can be limited by, uh, these things. Um, and if you complain about any of this stuff, they'll, they'll mock you. They'll say you're weak. This is what comedy is. If you can't take it, get out. You're, you're too sensitive. Your skin is too thin. Um, and so that's a further way of alienating you. Um, so again, is comedy for everybody? Hmm. Or is it just for people that fit your mold? Um, regardless, like I said, I found my own way. I produced my own shows. I made it, I did my own shit. And some of that was really, really good for me. And it got me ahead and got me things that I never would have gotten if I had just, you know, given up or whatever. I did not give up. Um, you know, cut to when I'm doing a little bit better, even, you know, the top in New York is the comedy seller. 
And that club, I like never even tried. I was like, there's no way. You know, I'd heard like how you get into the comedy cellar is like, you got to do the hang. You have to get vouched by two past regular comedians. The more powerful the comedian there that pa- that vouches for you, the better. Um, and you have like basically one shot to audition for the booker. And if um, if you don't get it at that point, it'll be years before you get another chance. Um, so, you know, it was like really, really like, uh, intense and high stakes feeling. Um, you know, so even the, like getting vouched, the vouched system to me is again, a social thing. And that can, um, that can create a sense of exclusivity based on personal relationships, which can, you know, foster, uh, barriers for marginalized groups. It's just true. You know, if, if the, everybody at the club is a white guy and they're going to be friends with mainly other white guys, that's who they know. That's who they hang with. It's, it's not the rule. There's obviously ex- uh, exceptions The you know, I've got a lot of black friends. Like there, <laughs> there's people that say that, and I'm not saying that there aren't, but it just naturally, especially with women in comedy, because women in comedy is a little bit specific because I think just no matter there's just a lot of people that just go this persistent myth of women aren't funny. Like you literally are told throughout your career, every step of the way in some way, shape or form that women aren't funny. And if they are, they're not nearly as funny as men. And it's just inherent to your gender inherent. Um, that's a barrier you're always trying to overcome. Um, and so back on point, um, comedy seller, I mean, you know, this vouching system, you know, I've heard stories of comedians, um, having trouble getting past there because one comedian there doesn't like them, you know? And so, you know, I always, always think of that when like stories like, what, so we're, we're going to ban Louis CK. He said he was sorry. First of all, he didn't say he was sorry. Um, you're going to ban him. It's like that people have been banned from clubs because one of the other comedians there is like, mm, I don't like that person. Don't book them. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's so, so silly. Yes, we're going to ban somebody that we don't like. It's, it happens all the time. I was told one time that I'm not going to get say specifics. I don't want to go there. But I was told one time that I wasn't welcome in the bar restaurant area adjacent to a club because one of the comedians there didn't like me. I wasn't even allowed. I mean, I was allowed, but like it, it, it was sort of the message was given to me that I was not welcome to even attend as a patron of the restaurant. <laughs> it just, you know, things happen that intimidate you and scare you off. And, and there's some bullying that goes on. Um, and, you know, in L.A., there's the comedy store. It's a legendary place. You know, Robin Williams came from there. Um uh, Billy Crystal, uh, Jim Carrey, like all just, just Richard Pryor. Like it it was just the, the Mecca of comedy. Um, just an incredible place. I've only performed there twice. It to me feels a lot like what I've been describing, which I just, you know, there's an emphasis on the hang and getting vouched. And I moved to LA and I was, I wasn't early enough in my career where that felt like a good use of my time, but I also wasn't big enough to just walk in and go, give me stage time. Um, And there's some comedians there that I just felt nervous about, like, oh, no, that person probably hates me and I don't want to have to hang around and kiss their ass, you know, just when you just don't feel like you fit in. Um, You don't want to play the social game, so you maybe miss out. I mean, that's my choice. That's my thing. 
You know, that's my barrier that I put on myself. Um, you know, and now with social media, there's another layer, which is if you say certain things on social media, you're kind of worried that like some of these people at these clubs are going to see it and not like you. If you speak up and complain about women in comedy, they're going to put you on their list, mental list of like shrill bitches that we don't want around, you know? And I've had those interactions with people where they kind of threaten a little. They, they, they use their language in a way that makes you feel like, oh God, I'm on the shit list now. Um, one example was with Tony Hinchcliffe. Um, I had an interaction with him online years ago where I was like praising Comedy Central for giving more half hour specials to women. I was like, like broke down the percentage of half hours that went to women. And I was like, look, it's getting better. Thank you. Progress. Awesome. I was just so excited. It was like, this is really getting improving over the years. And I needed that. I was rejected that year, but I was just so excited that it felt like there were more chances for women. Um, and we were breaking through. And I was—I didn't say anything there. I just went, progress! Yay! You know? And Tony Hinchcliffe gets hold of it. So start, the tweet starts going around. And he... I don't know him at this point. I've never followed... I've never met him. And he just... He goes, stop complaining and go work hard. Do the work and make your own thing. And it was like, what? I'm not complaining. What about this is complaining? I'm saying it's good. And also, I did... I did go make my own thing. I did everything I did, you know, on the outskirts of this scene. Okay. And, you know, he goes, well, I made my own thing. And I, and I look back on that and I go, did you? Cause now I know more about him. I'm like, you sat inside the most legendary comedy club. You were in there while others are on the outside. You were in there building your career. You were allowed in there. You are one of the the regulars there, you're, you're, you're respected there. You're almost a little king of your own domain within the comedy store. And I'll get to that in a second. So, you know, yeah, you built something, but you built it on a foundation of, of being accepted. And we use the word term past in comedy. Like when you get past at the comedy store, or the comedy seller, you are now a regular performer. And I love that term too. You, you passed through the gate. You made it through. Um, you are passing as a uh, acceptable definition of comedian. We now knight you an actual comic. Um, anyway, Tony at the at the comedy store hosts a show called, and this is all part of the context, by the way. I am still giving you context about the incident that we talked about earlier. Tony hosts a show called Kill Tony, and. Uh, apparently I've never seen it, but, uh, it's a show where they draw names out of a hat. Anyone can go put their name in the hat and they get one minute to perform in front of a packed house and Tony and a couple other established comics who then give feedback. Um, they can roast you or even praise you. Um, and, uh, sounds to me like a really high stakes open mic. It's probably incredibly entertaining for the audience like that. You know, you add that kind of tension, like somebody getting up. It's your shot, man. You're on the stage at, com at the comedy store, legendary comedy store. And one of the, you know, the host is like his own little king of the do domain there. And he will will praise you or he will roast you, but you'll love it either way. You know, it, it you know, go down in glory, man. You know, like it sounds like it's that kind of thing. And that, that's an entertaining show. 
It's, I mean, I would probably die inside watching, you know, anyone try comedy for the first time or, you know, in that setting that would make me want to die just because of my own, you know, being a comic and and worrying for the, the comedian getting up there trying their one minute, you know, like, oh God. And, you know, people have framed it as like, well, Tony gives comedians a chance at his show. And it's like, yes, but he also set it up in a way where he is he is the one and he's the ruler of that show. He is the gatekeeper. He is it's called Kill Tony. It's it's a it's a command to make me laugh, you little peasant. You know? <laughs> and um it's he's built a career off this show and it's beloved, I guess, and um he has a lot of fans and I and and you know, but think about the com- comedians that perform on that show, the younger I I think, you know, about me trying something like that. If I was had started in LA and I came and I did my one minute on Kill Tony, the fucking stress that I would feel, the nervousness, how badly I would want to please him and to impress him. And because they've said, oh, people have gone on to become professional comedians and become regulars at the comedy store. And it all started at Kill Tony. You know, like there's these, we we do these mythical stories. Um, which of course, they're more complicated than that. And we don't know really how much power Tony has at the comedy store. He's not there anymore. I think he moved to Texas with a bunch of other comics that have been kind of migrating to Texas with Joe Rogan. Um, separate topic. Um, but, you know... I don't know how much power he really has at the comedy store, but there's a perception there and there you can't ignore the power differential between the people that the younger comics and him. I mean, it and I'm going to go out on a limb and I don't know him, but I'm going to go out on a limb that he wields that power. Okay. I mean, when, when he and I had our little tiff on Twitter he, I remember just being like, oh, I, I didn't know who you were before today, but now I, I, I get an idea, you know, and he goes, I've noted who you are too. You know, it was like, I've made note is what he said. It was something like that. And I was just like, oh, oh, you've made a note. Oh shit. You're one of the guys at the comedy store that's like in there and fuck, you know, now fuck, I, they're going to fucking blacklist me from the comedy store, a place that I don't even really want to perform at, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's, it's real. You can't deny that. So this is the context I'm talking about. When we zoom forward to Texas this past week and a young comic named Pang getting up on stage, introducing, and he, you know, he's probably performing in a larger venue than he's normally not performing in maybe like to a larger audience. Like, cause a lot of times when you open for a comedian that's bigger than you, you know, you're getting a chance at their audience, which is bigger than your audience. And, um, and those are, the, the stakes can be a little high and then nerve wracking when you get to do those types of shows. I don't really know specifically, but, um, you take it seriously and, um, you had that. Okay. Um, so paying is, you know, a less powerful comedian than Tony and Tony gets up and, uh, you know, demeans him, throws hate speech at him, is, is Guy Branham on Twitter, another a comedian that I know, said, you know, Tony was canceling Pang, you know, like if we're going to use the word cancel to equate to criticizing or being shitty to another person, <laughs> Tony started it. I mean, you know, he made a choice to be awful. And uh, people are like, well, he, that's what Tony does. He roasts. No, 
Roasting is when we mock someone who has consented to the to the mocking, and we ro- we also often say we roast the ones we love. Um, pretty sure Tony doesn't love Pang. Like they don't know each other. That's bullshit. Um, and you know, people are like he tried something. He tried a joke and it didn't work. <laughs> it's like it worked to some people. Some people thought it was hilarious. Isn't that fucked up? You know, it's. And then you add the, oh, let's add some even more context that we are living in an era where there is an uptick in violence against Asian American Pacific Islanders um, and, you know, murder and violence, you know, random acts of violence against Asian people. I think that's what Pang had been talking about in his set. You know, and I guess Tony was like, well, what if I did the exact opposite? And I get up there and I was racist to him. Ha <laughs> ha, pretty funny. But he didn't do that. He didn't go, wouldn't it be funny if right now I was super racist to Pang? Like, even that wouldn't be funny to me. But but he didn't even phrase it that way. He just went up and just was a racist towards him. And, you know, uh, I, when you look at all of that, that is what we're talking about. When we talk about marginalized communities in comedy and how they're treated and why they aren't represented as much in these powerful spaces, in the clubs, in the scenes, on Netflix and all these things, on the, on the wall of headshots is because they get treated this way and pushed out and mocked and, and, and then they're told that that's what they're supposed to, to they're, that they're supposed to like it, that, that that's, that that is a uh, part of the game, man, you know, uh, who made up that rule? Why do you get to decide that that's what we all have to take? It's crazy. <laughs> You know, intros and the way, like, words like that in these high-stakes situations for younger comic can really damage you and and fuck with, because so much of comedy is mental and confidence and um, being able to find the humor in things. But when you've been beaten down, it makes it even harder, you know, and, and I don't want to conflate at all what women go through versus what a person of color, because I, I don't know what that experience is like, and I can't speak to it. I'm not conflating the two. They are separate experiences. I can only speak to what it's like to be a woman in comedy. Um, but, you know, I did a, a showcase one time for um, Just for Laughs. It's a big uh, comedy festival in Montreal every year. It's a big deal if you get to go and, the, and do what's called the New Faces Showcase. It's used to be, I think, more powerful than it is now. Used to be if you got new faces, you know, you leave with a deal, uh, uh, you know, late night set, agents, managers. Now it's like a little more nebulous, like of what, what it actually does for you. But it's a thing. It's an achievement that we all want. And I'm auditioning for it one year and I've been told like, you have a shot this year. This is like a great year for you to do it. They like you. I got a call back. I'm in this club. It's a smelly little club and um, it's uh, not a great audience. It's mostly agents, managers and the bookers for the festival. So they're not really laughing. They're just there to kind of analyze. So it's a tough room. And I go there and I'm like looking my best. And, you know, at the time, my, my strategy on stage was to look cute but not be like, not try to be sexy at all, but just to look put together like the way I would dress for work, you know. Um, and at the time, the style was like, you know, a skirt with um, boots that were like knee high leather boots. Like you remember you used to tuck your jeans into the boots. You know, that was the style then. Um, 
and I might have had tights on or something and like not a short skirt, but just like maybe mid mid thigh to, to almost to the knee shirt and a little jacket, you know, not low cut, you know, just just cute. OK, that's that was what I was trying to be. It was just like, you know, put together like I cared. OK, that's how I felt about the way I looked. That will come into play in a minute. <laughs> so I go. I'm, I'm panicking. I'm in the bathroom reciting, like going through, you have five minutes. I've been told, don't riff, just do the the exact set that you want to do on the festival. Do not do other stuff. Stick to the jokes that you want to do. That is what they're going to want you to do that exact set when you go up to Montreal. It's like, okay, I've got my jokes. And it was really hard for me to condense my jokes into five minutes. And I, but I did it. I'm standing there waiting. I'm the only woman, of course, and the comedian who's hosting was a more established comedian. He had done Montreal many times. And he goes, next up, finally, a taco at the sausage party. Give it up for Sarah Schaefer. Now, I get he was trying to be like, maybe he was, maybe he was making a commentary on there's not enough women on this showcase. But, it's, but to do that, he called me a taco. He didn't hype me up like he did the other comics. The other comics, he's a very funny guy. He's a friend of mine. You've seen him here, you know, trying to pipe trying to vouch for them he didn't do that for me he demeaned me he called me a a a vagina uh in a really gross way and then he highlighted the fact that i was the only woman better watch out here comes the woman are you guys ready for a lady Ooh. oh i hope she doesn't fuck it up oh fuck everything's riding on this sarah went up there and I, again I couldn't deviate and maybe if I had like roasted him back really quick and then got into my jokes uh maybe I could have impressed them and been like wow she was so on her feet and she fucking took him down great Sarah let's carry you up to Montreal on our shoulders but you know it's called new faces not veteran faces all right I didn't have the skills yet to do that and I was also terrified and in shock so I just had to focus Hunker down and do my jokes and get out of there. I did not get new faces that year. Well, then a couple of years later, and, and this is again to provide more context of it's not just about being funny. Okay. There's so much more that goes into it as you already know from everything I've just said. But then you add shit like this. So a few years ago, I've come to find out through, a, I won't say how I found out. And I don't know who this is about. I just know it's about one of the bookers for the New Faces Festival at Montreal. Uh, so I don't know who specifically, okay? So just to be clear, but I was told that one of the bookers for New Faces had a, had a rule, uh, an unspoken rule, my favorite kind of rule, the best kind, an unspoken rule that if a woman comic got up on stage at her audition and she was wearing a skirt and boots and boots. Automatic rejection. Why? Why? I, I don't understand it. Explain. <laughs> was it? Is this what, is it because they thought the girl was trying to be sexy and trying to seduce them into getting a spot? But I heard this and I started crying. It makes me almost want to cry right now. That I was dressing what I thought was professional. And I come to find out I 
took myself out of one of the biggest opportunities in comedy because I didn't know that the weird booker had a weird thing about boots and a skirt. And it wasn't even slutty. It's not like I went up there in a bikini and heels. I mean, maybe that's what he wanted. Maybe he was mad. He's like, why aren't you naked? (laughs) You idiot. I don't know. I'm telling you, it is not about just about being funny. Yes, you do have to be funny. You do have to be funny. But there's so much more to it. And it's anyone who says it it isn't, there isn't more to it, is fucking lying to you. (laughs) Pardon me if I laugh when a comedian starts going, comedy is a family, man. You know, we're a community. We have each other's backs, all right? Don't ever shit talk another comedian. That's breaking the comedian's code. Do you hear yourself? It's it's not a fam. No, you sound like you're talking about a cult, like Scientology or Nexium, and you're trying to recruit people. This is what you sound like to me. Are you searching for something? Do you lack meaning in your life? A purpose? Well, there's a place for you. A place your voice will be heard. A place where everyone knows your name. Comedy. Connect with others, be a part of something, and make the world laugh. Anyone can join. Here at Comedy, we welcome all. We offer support, training, and classes. You'll learn from the masters and the truth tellers. Comedians always have each other's backs, no matter what. It's a community like no other, a family. All you have to do is just hang out. That's right, just hang out. Hang out for hours and hours, night after night, for years on end without getting paid, with people who are cruel and sometimes criminals. You need to get those people to like you. Then, you'll move from level one open micer to host level, feature level, headliner B level, headliner A theater tier, master level, one of the greats level, and finally, legend tier. If along your climb to legend tier, anyone ever humiliates or messes with you, don't worry. That's part of it. Don't say anything to anyone because that's against the comedian's code. Yes, I know they just bullied you or maybe even assaulted you, and you should at least be able to use your own freedom of speech to fight back, right? Wrong. Because that's not how it works. Freedom of speech only protects the edgy guys who want to say racist stuff without ever being criticized. Remember, criticism is only something they get to do. If you do it, you're a weak-ass pussy who doesn't belong in comedy. And besides, it was a joke, okay? Why aren't you laughing? Aren't you supposed to be funny? You must have forgotten. Everything a comedian says or does on or off stage is always a joke, except for when they are having a nervous breakdown about cancel culture. Then it is not a joke. It is very, very serious, and we need to listen to them. So what are you waiting for? Visit your local comedy club today and start your climb. One day, you might get to open for Joe Rogan. And that's pretty neat, huh? Okay. (laughs) You know what? These are the things I think about while I'm gluing 50 tiny picture frames of comedians to a wall. Um, By the way, I do use glue dots for that. Check out glue dots. They're great. Great, great type of adhesive. Um, 
I realize I am painting a pretty grim picture here, but I promise it's not all like that. I am pushing against this idea now. Many, many other comedians are. There are other voices. There are other scenes. There are other clubs. Um, and in the end, all comedy clubs, aren't they just tiny boxes incapable of fitting the vast universe of talent, perspective, and types of people? Hmm? Think about it. This has been the Schaefer Shakedown. Bye.